Good morning, Bethel. I've said um, a number of times in my life that if you, uh, if you come to Delaware and you have allergies, they're going to get worse. And if you live in Delaware long enough, you'll get allergies. The good Lord gave me a number of years before that prophecy came true. <clears throat> and now I'm one of the fellow strugglers, so I'm with you. Um, in light of that, I purposed in my heart this morning not to sing. Um, <clears throat> and then, thank you, Mark and team, uh, because the songs that were presented um, just had my heart singing and my lips were moving. And so I'm not sure if I have a half hour's worth of voice left. Um, you'll have to forgive me, but um, I, do, um, I do appreciate the opportunity to be up here and, and fill the pulpit. Um, so thank you, Pastor Chris, for giving me this chance. And um, so we're going to, um, as was said, we're going to stay there in Acts. Um, and I really appreciated what Mark had to say um, as he led into that song, um, Not Your Will, um, or Not My Will, But Yours Be Done. Um, because I think, you know, we've had this, we've had this pandemic on our, on our minds for these past two years, right? And, and if there's any question that we've heard more than anything else is, when are we going to get back to normal? And if there's a phrase <clears throat> that I've really come to despise in these last two years, it's got to be the phrase, the new normal. I kind of hate it. Um, you know, our work is, is trying to get back to normal. There's more people coming to the office every week, um, even if it's just a day or two. Um, and we're actually allowed to talk to each other now at our desks. Um, and we can sit at the same table when we go to lunch. Um, there's still some of my teammates that they've never actually met face to face. Maybe they never will. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. Um, I know I don't, I don't mind not sitting in traffic for that daily commute. So I'm still good with it. You know, life has been pretty abnormal for these past few years. And, and it's not just the, the pandemic. I mean, look around. Um, you know, incredible upheaval and civil unrest in this country. And a crazy election and a, a near coup in our capital, right? It's nuts. We withdrew our troops from Afghanistan and almost immediately the Taliban just took right over. Every time you turn around, you hear about another celebrity scandal, uh, you know, the slap heard around the world. Um, if the, you know, you go into the teacher's classrooms and they're, they're pushing perverse sexual ethics to kindergartners and first graders. You've got biological men who are out there shattering women's athletic records. Okay, we, and we don't even, haven't even mentioned yet, Russia invaded Ukraine. Okay. All along the way, we're getting more misinformation and false information than true information. And that's just not normal. There's nothing about this that's normal. So maybe the new normal is that nothing is normal. Yeah, in our church, we've had to adapt in so many different ways. A couple years ago, we, we went from just thinking about the possibility of offering video in the future to in one week flat, we were offering a fully virtual service. We, we had tape markers 
up here on the platform to show us where we were allowed to stand if we wanted to sing. That's nuts. We held multi-generational community group over Zoom. I'm guessing most of you never heard of Zoom before 2020. We made a lot of changes. Some families figured out how to incorporate their kids into the, the regular adult worship service until ch children's ministries could safely resume. So I think we've learned a lot of things, and I hope that we come out on the other side of this stronger and healthier than ever. And I just want to take a, a moment and just praise God for our return team and for all of the work that they did to help us get back to normal. Um, I think more often than not, when we express our longing for back to normal, right, we're, we're probably thinking about when can I go and, and sit and eat in a Chick-fil-A? When can I travel on an airplane without wearing a mask? Or when am I going to finally be able to get a computer chip for my gaming console or my pickup truck? And even if we ever did, are we ever going to be able to fill our tank again, <laughs> right, on a single paycheck? <laughs> But this morning, I want to think about and consider a different back to normal. I'm hoping that this spirit is going to stir within us a longing for what normal looked like to Christians in the first century church in Acts. So we're going to look together at how they defined normal inauguration into the church, what they concentrated as normal activities and what they enjoyed as the normal fruit in the church. So we'll use that as an outline, and I apologize. I'm not one of those overachievers who gets my outline to Gail like by Thursday or Friday. So if you picked up an outline, um, you'll have to fill in um, those, you know, the whole blank page because I didn't get it there in time. But we're going to focus our study here in the, in the last part of Acts chapter 2. So if you're still there, great. If not, you can turn there um, and we'll be um, kind of picking it up right at the end of Peter's sermon that Diane read for us. Um, so in, in the first five verses, 37 to 41, Peter is going to answer how do we respond to God's conviction when, when God breathes spiritual life into you, th then what? Um, what do you have to do to become part of the church? We'll try to answer that from the text, and then we'll see a, a one-verse summary of what the normal church does. So if you're looking for a healthy church, what should you look for? And then finally, those last five verses is going to give us a glimpse into the life of that early church. What was the impact of a normal response to gospel preaching and participation in normal church ministry? And should we expect Bethel to experience something similar. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. Heavenly Father, we have come to worship, and we come with empty hands. We, we bring nothing. We cling to Christ. So Lord, we, we pray this morning, not my will, but yours, not my words, but yours. Lord, we need you to um, to regenerate our hearts, to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Lord, we need you to show us your word this morning. 
So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses... I've reached that age too. All right, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 37 starts with, Now when they heard this. Heard what? Well, Peter's sermon. We don't have a lot of time to get into the details of it, but essentially, Peter explains to them what it is that they were witnessing. They were seeing messianic fulfillment. Joel had prophesied that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit. So Peter says, guess what? These are the last days. We are in messianic times. So that's verses 14 to 21. Then he introduces Jesus. If it's messianic times, there's got to be a Messiah. So Peter says, guess what? Jesus is Messiah. And he spends verses 22 to 35 proving that. He shows that Jesus is Messiah by virtue of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And they were eyewitnesses to it all. Then in verse 36, Peter really turns the screws. He says, guess what? You crucified him. Look at that conclusion right before the text that that I just read. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That word Christ is the word for Messiah. It's Greek Christ, Hebrew Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's not pulling any punches here. He indicts them as executioners of their own Messiah. And that's the core of the problem, right? The greatest sin we can ever commit is rejecting Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And that's what the Spirit convicts us of. So if you would turn back to John 16 and see that. If you're using a pew Bible, it's uh, page 902, just a few pages back in the Gospel of John. And look there at verse 8. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples about the Spirit, and he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe. Believe what? Believe in me. Believe in Jesus. So where does the inauguration into the church begin? What's the on-ramp to salvation? Well, it starts with the conviction that God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And that was the impact of Peter's gospel preaching. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Other translations say pierced. 
It's as if Peter, or more precisely, the Holy Spirit, using Peter's words, had jammed a dagger into their hearts. They'd been earnestly waiting for centuries for Messiah to come. And when he finally did come, they rejected and killed him. Not only had they executed their own Messiah, but now, in no uncertain terms, he was alive again. So they were rightly afraid of his wrath. Peter had just reminded them that Messiah, when he ascended, would make his enemies his footstool. So they were convicted because they had just done the worst thing imaginable. They had rejected and killed their Messiah, and they couldn't undo it. He was gone, up to heaven. So they ask Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? That's got to be one of the most important questions that's ever posed in the Bible. How can I be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life, right? And then people will come up with all kinds of answers to that question and then try to defend them, even using scripture. The legalist says, keep the law. The moralist says, make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad ones. The relativist says, don't worry, there's many paths to God, and so on. Well, today I hope we see a correct biblical response to that question. The Jews that were living in Jerusalem and, and devout men from every nation who had gathered and listened to Peter's sermon, they came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit with their guilty hearts pierced by the living and active word of God, fearing the wrath of God and the vengeance of his Messiah. They were brought to a place of mourning. Actually, this had been prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12. So if you want to turn back there, it's right at the end of the Old Testament, the Pew Bible, page 799. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. In other words, at the time of the restoration of Israel, they're going to feel guilty over the execution of the Messiah. They're going to recognize that they've pierced their own Messiah and the pain and the anguish that they feel over that, it's going to be just as bad as if they had murdered their own firstborn son. So that's how these people on the day of Pentecost must have felt. Stay in Zechariah for a second because it doesn't end with mourning. If you look ahead to the first verse of chapter 13, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Conviction is followed by cleansing. And that's exactly the hope that Peter offers them. So look at how he answers the question. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when they ask, is there any way that we can undo what we've done? In verse 38 of Acts 2, Peter gives the answer. Well, for starters, you can repent. Let's make sure we understand what that word repent means. Repentance isn't just regret, right? They'd already been cut to the heart. So repentance has to be something more than just feeling convicted. It means following through on that conviction and turning around. It's a complete change of mind. Paul actually recounts in Acts, later in Acts, um, chapter 26, verse 18, um, which is 935 if you're using a pew Bible. He's talking about his conversion here and how Jesus um, explained to him that turning um, leads to forgiveness. So Jesus commissioned Paul with these words. Acts 26, 18. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What's your inauguration into the kingdom? It's turning from darkness to light. It's turning from Satan to God. I think the newsboys really hit the nail on the head um, in the lyrics to their, their hit song, Shine. And I know, I, I keep showing my age this morning. I'm quoting from a song that was written when I was in college. But in that song, they described the kind of light that might persuade a strict dictator to retire, fire the army, teach the poor origami. Right? That's a total 180. Or maybe the kind of change that'd make an Eskimo renounce fur, that'd make a vegetarian barbecue hamster. I'm not kidding. Those are the actual lyrics to the song. <laughs> I think my favorite one is the kind of entire turnaround that would make a bouncer take ballet, even bouncers who aren't happy. They really paint a mental picture of repentance, don't they? But Peter didn't stop at repentance. He took his answer to that question a step further. Look at the second part of his answer, still there in verse, well, I closed my Bible. That was a mistake. Still in verse 38, right? Repent and be baptized. Now, we've got to be careful here so that we don't turn baptism into something that it isn't. Is this text suggesting that you've got to be baptized to be saved? No, not at all. Baptism isn't some magic ritual that gets you saved. There's no special power in the water. The power is in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his person, in his identity, in his sacrificial death on the cross. So when we read in verse 38, for the forgiveness of sins, we, we need to make sure we don't understand that as in order that your sins might be forgiven. So the Greek word ice can be translated in several ways. One of them um, is used with verbs of change. 
Um, and uh, it's, it's the translation because of. So we actually translate that in our heads in English too, right? We translate for as because of um, in a lot of ways. If you saw a poster in the Old West that says, wanted for murder, that's not a recruitment campaign, okay? They're not gathering a posse in order to commit murder. It's because a murder had already been committed. Or think about the label on a pill bottle, right? You would never read, take three times a day for pain and think to yourself, oh, I guess in order to get pain, I got to take some of these pills. No, you take them because of the pain that's already there. So it's the same thing here. Repent and be baptized because of, on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. I'm not going to need those. So what is baptism? Well, baptism is the outward expression of repentance. Baptism is a public act of faith, an open identification with Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. And it's part of the normal inauguration into the church. Repent and be baptized. Turn from the darkness to the light and identify yourself with the Savior and his people. This is the normal cadence that recurs time and time again throughout Acts. Conviction, repentance, baptism. So I've got eight examples here, but for the, for the sake of brevity, um, I'll tell you what the stories are, and you can go look for yourself. So the, the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 and Simon the sorcerer, right? They believed they were baptized. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, also in Acts chapter 8, when Philip met him on the road, he believed he was baptized. Paul, when he was converted, it says in, in Acts chapter 9, scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight, he rose and was baptized. The first Gentile converts in Acts chapter 10, they believed and they were baptized. Are you seeing a pattern here? The first European convert, Lydia and her family, she believed she was baptized. How about the Philippian jailer? Acts chapter 16. Did I tell you where Lydia was? That's also Acts 16. Um, later in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. He and his family believed they were baptized. Um, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, believed, was baptized. Okay, and then finally the, the believers in Ephesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In fact, in his commentary, uh, on Acts, F.F. Bruce says, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. Baptism functions as a tangible sign, not only to the person that's being baptized, but to the entire Christian community who witnesses this initiation, that Christ has conquered sin and death, that we're raised to new life in him. It's a a visible representation of the gospel. It's a symbol pointing to the objective work of Christ and to its subjective effects in the life of God's people. So that's the appeal that Peter makes. And you'll notice it's not just that three-minute sermon. All right, verse 40 says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So let me just pause and offer this exhortation to you. Do you know for certain that God has made Jesus 
both Lord and Christ? Has your heart been pierced by his word? Have you fallen under the conviction of the Spirit concerning your sin and God's righteousness and the coming judgment? Then repent and be baptized. Turn away from your sin, turn toward God. Change your mind and your heart so you're no longer at odds with God, but rather in sync with him. And then go public with it. Identify yourself with the Savior and with his people and submit in obedience through the waters of baptism. So if you want to know more about what that looks like, I would urge you to speak to Pastor Chris or one of our elders. Or you can get in touch with Gail in the office, and I'm, I'm sure she would set you up with an appointment to speak to someone. If you came with someone today, talk to them about it. I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. But on the day that Peter preached this sermon, some 3,000 people were inaugurated into the church. I long for the day when that kind of response to hearing the gospel preached in our church would be normal. So we know what a normal inauguration into the church looked like. We're going to now turn and look at the normal activities of the church. We get a one-verse summary statement, and then it gets unpacked in a little more detail and fleshed out over the next five verses. So verse 42 of Acts 2 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The verb that he uses there, devoted, it connotes a, a steadfast and earnest attention. They gave unremitting care to these things, the apostles' teaching, teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Is that four things? Or is that two things? That, I think the grammar is debatable. Right? The way the Greek reads, you've got the definite article, in the, four times. Steadfastly continuing in the teaching, in the fellowship, in the breaking, in the prayers. But you've only got the Greek conjunction and twice. Teaching of the apostles and fellowship, breaking of the bread and prayers. So I don't know. It's probably not a big deal. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to split the difference. We're going to cover them in three broad topics. We're going to say that the normal activities of the early church, they were a studying church, they were a fellowshipping church, and they were a worshiping church. The first thing they devoted themselves to was studying. They committed themselves to being instructed in the Word of God. Paul lays out a pattern for Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. Here's the way it goes. You've been taught by me. You teach faithful men. They'll teach others also. That's the normal pattern for the church. It's a, a reproductive teaching cycle where faithful followers are taught and they in turn teach others. So doctrine, teaching, is the lifeblood of a healthy church. A normal church is a Bible-studying church. The second thing they devoted themselves to was fellowshipping. Now, we might have a, a variety of images that come to mind when we think about fellowship. 
The Greek word koinonia is built on the root meaning of sharing. It carries the idea of partnership and community. It's spiritual togetherness. And this is super important. We need each other. We belong to each other and to Christ. We are members of each other and of Christ. So that's why the writer of Hebrews exhorts us not to neglect meeting together. I think that's one of the things that made these last two years so abnormal for the church. It is not normal for the church not to gather. It is not a normal expression of New Testament Christianity to isolate yourself from other believers. We were not called to gather around a screen. We're called to gather around a table. Now, I'm not talking about limitations and restrictions that require special accommodation, right? There's, there's always going to be special circumstances where it's just not feasible or viable. And we praise God that he's provided the technology so that we can still connect to people remotely who are in those situations. But let me offer this exhortation. If you're a believer and you're not involved in the local assembly, in the fellowship, the partnership of the local assembly, you're being disobedient. And if your participation in the local church body amounts to sliding in after the prelude and then slipping out right before the benediction, you're not really enjoying fellowship. And worse, if you're slipping in and out once or twice a month or popping into the live stream every couple of weeks, you've missed the point entirely. The church was not intended to be an entertainment venue. Fellowship is not a spectator sport. Do you ever find yourself critiquing your church because the music doesn't speak to you or because your sermons are too preachy or because they don't have enough programs for your kids? Maybe it's not time to reevaluate your church. Maybe it's time to reevaluate your own heart. Are you exercising your spiritual gifts in loving and joyful partnership with other believers for the building up of the body of Christ. You know, about 15 years ago, someone wrote a book titled, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. Here's, I, I, exactly, thank you, Premier. I appreciate that, right? Here's what I would suggest. If, if that's what they really think, they probably don't know either one. It's impossible to love Jesus and not love the church. To separate Jesus from his church would be like telling the body to function without its head. But that's the side rant. So let's get back to the point. A normal church is a fellowshipping church. The third thing they devoted themselves to was worshiping. Now I've joined the last two phrases together, the breaking of bread and the prayers into one main idea of worship. The breaking of bread most likely referred to the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, I should note that Luke, the writer of Acts, 
makes it a little hard to differentiate whether he's talking about the observance of communion or a simple act of eating a meal together. So, for example, he uses that expression, um, the, the expression here in Acts 2, the same one he uses in Luke 24, 30, at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then he uses it again in Acts 20, verses 7 and 11, where it could be either communion or a fellowship meal or what Paul calls a love feast. And then again, he uses the same phrase in Acts 27, 35, where it refers to all the ship's passengers eating something before they struck shore. That was believers and, and non-believers alike, so it's clearly not communion. So you could just as easily tie the breaking of bread together with the fellowshipping as you could with the worshiping. In fact, the more I studied this text, I almost made praying the third point, the third subpoint here. Um, a normal church is a praying church. But I think the way the text reads, that they devoted themselves to the prayers, it indicates a reference to something more formal. I think what Luke is telling us is that the early church diligently persisted in observing the customary times of Jewish prayer at the temple. The observance of the Lord's Supper and the prayers were just two of the regular activities of the worshiping church. So when we come around the table for communion, we're celebrating our oneness with Christ and with every other believer. It's a time to examine our hearts, to confess our sins. Here at Bethel, we observe it typically on the first Sunday of every month. But I have to wonder if the early church made it a much more normal practice. Uh, this text here in Acts certainly seems to indicate that could have been the case. And then as for prayer, oh man, we could, and maybe we should, have an entire sermon series devoted to prayer. I know if Pastor Chris were standing here today, um, he'd take the opportunity to plug our Wednesday evening prayer meeting. Um, and if Jean were up here, She'd be putting in a good word for the Saturday morning ministry partner prayer time. And did you know that our ladies have like a whole team of uh, committed to intercessory prayer? So we need to be a praying church. If there's anything more critical to the health of a church, I don't know what it would be. So instead of trying to preach a sermon on prayer, I was going to let Spurgeon weigh in. Then I, then I actually found out that the Spurgeon was quoting another poet, a 19th century poet named Martin F. Tupper. But I still think it's a good word, so let me share it with you here. Prayer is a creature's strength, his very breath and being. Prayer is the golden key that can open the wicket of mercy. Prayer is the magic sound that said to fate, so be it. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. I'm going to read that one again. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Therefore, pray, O creature, for many and great are your needs, your mind, your conscience, and your being. Your needs commend you unto prayer, the cure of all cares, the grand panacea for all pains, doubts destroyer, ruins remedy, the antidote to all anxieties.
So a normal church is a worshiping and a praying church. We've looked at the normal inauguration into the church. We've looked at the normal activities of the church. So what's the impact? What should we expect to enjoy as normal fruit in the church? We're going to look really briefly at the last five verses to see how the early church was impacted and how it impacted the world. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the first thing that we need to notice about the impact of the church is that it brought awe. Everyone was keenly aware that something supernatural was happening. God was so obviously at work among them. It was so real and so powerful that the watching world just had to stand there wide-eyed and wondering. They couldn't explain it. Have you ever had that experience? When you've seen something so inexplicably divine that all you could do is stare in awe. I wonder if Bethel has ever or could ever impact our community like that. What if it was normal? I think this next point, the pattern that's described over the next several verses, if that became the normal rhythm of living life together, it would definitely turn people's heads. Verses 44 and following. <coughs> and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So let me just take a brief detour here. Ask the question, is Luke advocating a form of communism or socialism? Should that be our takeaway today? Right, that we need to disavow private ownership should we sell everything, go live in a Christian commune? You know what? We might be super quick to read this text and defend ourselves in any number of ways. Hey, it was purely voluntary, right? There's no command here. We don't have to live this way just because the early church did. You might even look ahead to Romans 15, 26, and you would point out all the poor saints in Jerusalem just 20 years later, and you would say, yeah, you see where that communism got them? But we need to be careful not to write off this text as a mere anecdote or a failed experiment in communal living. So don't let your attachment to material things make you miss the point. Luke recorded this because it was a praiseworthy pattern. These new believers shared life together. They had all things in common. If one was in need, the others didn't feel like they had the right to live on in prosperity without giving up something to meet that need. Generosity and hospitality were normal patterns in the early church. I have a quote by Aristides. He was a, a second century Athenian Philosopher, and he wrote this famous apology to the Roman emperor, uh, Antoninus Pius. Here's how he described the Christians of that day. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes 
and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the, after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there's any among them that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Is that how we're known? It was normal for the early church to share life together. So now we've come to the last verse in the chapter and the last hallmark of that early church. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They started on the day of Pentecost with about 120 people. <coughs> Excuse me. At least that's how many they counted in the upper room right after the ascension. But in one day, they added another 3,000. And then, day by day, the Lord added to their number. When you start with a normal inauguration by conviction, repentance, and baptism, you should expect something real to take root. And then when you focus on normal activities like studying, fellowshipping, worshiping, you should expect real fruit. The church in Jerusalem didn't grow because they did a, a survey of the felt needs of the community. They didn't grow because they had the coolest youth pastor or the best organist in town, although we do. Just say it. <laughs> They didn't grow because some local industry hired tons of people, brought an influx of transplants. They didn't grow because some other church in a neighboring town couldn't stop bickering over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. Right? The church grew because the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Evangelistic growth is the normal fruit of the church. Do you long for God to add to Bethel's number souls who are being saved in our community? Do you long to feel a sense of awe as we watch the wonders of God at work here? To hear how he uses people in our body like he did Peter to preach the gospel boldly? Do you long to see his spirit move among us as he did in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Do you long for God to take Bethel back to normal, back to how the early church thought normal Christianity should look? Would you pray with me right now that he would do just that? Our Father, we pray that you would make yourself visible and known here at Bethel for being a God who works wonders. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to understand what normal should look like and take us back there. 
Lord, that you would not allow today's society to define it, but instead that your word would shape our understanding of what we ought to look like as a church. Lord, I pray if there are those among us today who are being convicted, Lord, that you would help them to repent and then identify with the Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue in faithful study and fellowship and worship together here. And Lord, I pray for fruit. I pray that we would be known as a place where you are at work, where we are sharing life together, and where we are seeing souls added because they're being saved. Lord, that's our desire. Would you do that good work among us? Begin it today. In Jesus' name, amen.